Well, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, uh, we're looking here, kind of concluding. This will be the last uh, message in the book of Genesis as we kind of make our way through the, the Pentateuch, through the first five books of the Bible. And we're, uh, we're looking, kind of looking at the story of Joseph, which really is a subset of the story of Jacob, uh, although it consumes a lot of chapters. And here in Genesis 49... Jacob is giving his his blessings to his his sons, and we see, see these these blessings that he gives them. Kind of his God giving him these these this insight into what's going to take place in the future and how the blessings are going to be received. And he gives a blessing to each of his sons, a word of a prophetic nature. And uh, though I want us to look more carefully at what he says to Judah. In verses 8 through 12, this is what Jacob says to Judah about the blessing and how it's going to, really the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is going to be realized through his descendant. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, this is Genesis chapter 49 uh, beginning in verse 8. We read Jacob saying this, Judah Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. You may be seated. May God encourage us. Through his, his word this morning, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we do recognize the, the beauty of your son Jesus. We put our trust and our confidence in him this morning. And I know that there are needs here. I know some of them. I don't know many of them. I don't know most of the needs here. But I, I believe by uh, what we see in your word that whatever struggle a person is going through this morning... Uh, the answer is ultimately, ultimately found in your son, Jesus. And so we recognize, as we've proclaimed already this morning, his worth, his beauty. Help us to, to behold that through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The history of, of money is a really fascinating study. I may have oversold that. Uh, the study of money is an interesting subject to some people sometimes, right? I find parts of, of finances and the history of finances interesting, particularly when it relates to, to human psychology, if you will. Why, why people do what they do, why people value what they value, why they say this has value and, and this doesn't have value, and why this has value in relationship to this. That's, that's an interesting thing to me. Archaeologists, for example, have, have found thousands of clay tablets from the 6th century B.C., from the Babylonian Empire. They found thousands of these clay tablets. And apparently these, these clay tablets would be used to 
to record debts. And so if, if uh, someone, let's say Eric here, wanted to borrow some goats from me, we'd have this clay tablet, and we'd have Eric borrowing four goats. And we'd say, Eric's going to pay me back five goats in this amount of time. And I'd, I'd keep that clay tablet, and whenever Eric gave me the goats, we'd record, okay, this now the goats are, are paid for. But according to my understanding, what would happen is these tablets begin to take on value themselves. There's nothing intrinsically value about this clay tablet, but, but now this, this promise that had Eric's name on it, to pay back these goats. Now it became worth something. And so I could, I could trade it to Tim. I said, Tim, here you go. Here's this tablet. It's going to be worth five goats eventually whenever Eric gets the goats to you. But, but now I'm going to, I want this and I would like uh, you, you know, I, I want this from you and say, give me some gold or give me some grain or give me a tattoo, something like that for this, this clay tablet. And we would exchange because the clay tablet now has value. And the, the, the value of this tablet was based upon this belief that Eric would, would pay up. There's trust. We believe his name, that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. With the grain or the gold or the goat, whatever. Now, whenever I was a, a kid, my parents twice a month would do something called the books, where they paid the bills. And doing the books that night was kind of a, a, I wouldn't say tense always, but kind of, you know, it was, it was kind of a, a night we knew mom and dad were going to be pretty, pretty focused, and they'd spread out all the bills and, and the spreadsheets and the checkbook, and I didn't understand really what was taking place there, but I, I knew that it was this time I didn't want to really go ask them a lot of questions because somehow through all this, this work with the papers they were doing, they were somehow magically providing a roof over our head and somehow paying for all the groceries. I didn't know how it all worked, but it seemed really complicated, and somehow they were providing through us through the, the books time. Now, as I got older in high school, my dad began to teach me how to pay bills and keep a budget and things like that, and, and we sat down, and one time, as, as he explained it to me, I said, okay, this is the bill, this is the checkbook. You write a bill. You write the check based upon what the bill is, and then you kind of make a note of it here in the budget. And so, I saw this number. I wrote this number there, and we put it in, a, in an envelope. And I thought that that's it. Like, like, how in the world does that work? I mean, these are just kind of numbers on a, on a piece of paper, and, and it's all based on trust, right? The whole thing. Who knows, right? It's based upon a belief that you know. I give these numbers that I have in my bank account to, to someone else that takes these numbers, and they believe that those numbers are going to have value for them to pay someone else something in the future. It's all kind of this, this trust system in, in many ways, believing in, in this future promise. In Genesis, some promises have been made. In Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise that he's going to, to deal with the effects of the curse on humankind. And we come to Genesis chapter 12, and how that curse is going to be dealt with is explained in a more elaborate way. We, we have this covenant made with Abraham, and Abraham is told, look, there's going to be this promise to you. You're going to have land, and you're going to have descendants and your descendant is going to be a blessing, not just to yourself, but, but to the nations. There's this, this continued blessing, and there's this belief that the blessings are going to be realized. Now, as we come to the end of Genesis, as we come to Genesis 49, 
that promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. The promise made to Abraham still hasn't been realized. And in this chapter, what we see is that there is a coming descendant of Judah, particularly the tribe of Judah. There's a coming descendant who is going to take care of all the blessings that have been promised. Now let me kind of walk through what's happened between last week and this week. So we're in Genesis 45, and in Genesis 45, Pharaoh's excited when he hears that that Jacob and the family is going to join, or that Joseph's brothers are there. He's excited about Jacob and the brothers joining Joseph there in Egypt. You come to chapter 46, and everyone travels to Egypt, and Jacob and Joseph are reunited, and Jacob is excited to see his son. You see that the the, the famine continues there in chapter uh, in chapter forty seven. The family appears before Joseph or the, before Pharaoh. Some of the family does. Uh, Pharaoh tells them to settle in the land of Goshen. That this famine continues. Then you come to chapter forty eight, and uh, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh. He blesses. Manasseh with the blessing of the oldest son, even though he's the youngest son. You continue to see that theme that it doesn't depend upon the person who receives God's blessing, but God's mercy and his grace. And then you come to chapter 49. And look at 49 with me. In 49, you have Jacob calling his sons together and he blesses them. He tells you, he says, I want to tell you what's going to happen to you in days to come. He tells Reuben, that he's lost, his, you know, as he gives his prophetic word, he tells Reuben that he's lost his position of preeminence because of his sin against his father. Simeon and Levi also lose their position of, of prominence because of their, their violence done against the people who were associated with the, the man who violated their sister Dinah. He calls their anger fierce, and so they lose their position of, of prominence. They're divided in the land, scattered, and that comes to be the case. Simeon is lower in preeminence among the brothers. Levi doesn't have a physical inheritance in the land. And then in verses 8 through 12, he talks about Judah. And there's this coming king through Judah. And we're going to talk more about this king and this coming descendant. But, but we see this, the blessings kind of hinge here on Judah. Zebulun, he says, also receives the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It says that he's go- his border is going to be extended. Issachar, Issachar is going to receive the, the promised rest, we see in verse 15. Dan, Dan is going to receive the salvation of the Lord, even though there's struggle for him. Gad is going to be able to take vengeance upon those who have harmed him. Asher is going to experience the, the abundance of the covenant blessing. Naphtali is going to receive increase. Joseph is going to receive the blessing. Uh, Benjamin, Joseph, he spends the most time talking about his blessing, the the bounty of of his blessing. And then Benjamin is also going to experience conquest. So all the brothers are going to experience, their descendants are going to experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The, The promises are going to be fulfilled. And the way that they're going to be fulfilled is in this coming king through Judah's line. The blessings are dependent upon this coming descendant 
of Judah. Remember when this was compiled or written by Moses. Jacob says these words, and then hundreds of years go by, and I'm sure that these words, as, as, as the descendants of Jacob were able to remember them, brought comfort and, and peace and faith, and, and Moses writes these things down. And remember, he writes these things down hundreds of years later as the people of Israel are encamped on the plains of Moab, and they're preparing to go into the land of Canaan. As they go into the land of Canaan, what are they going to encounter? They're going to encounter people who have different beliefs about how blessing can be obtained. As the people of Israel go into the land of Canaan, they're going to encounter people who have different values and and different understandings about how peace and blessing and prosperity can be achieved. And so they're going to encounter people who have a different understanding about how God should be worshipped or how the gods should be worshipped. They're going to have a different understanding about the purpose of marriage. They're going to have a different understanding about the value of children. They're going to have a different understanding about sexuality, and about work, and about labor, and about, about agriculture. There's every area of life that the Canaanites experience and the Israelites experience. They have different value systems here, and, and different understandings about how blessing is achieved. Some of the things that the Canaanites do, I don't even feel comfortable talking about because they're so atrocious. The, the, the atrocities they committed against each other and their worship of the gods, the things they did to their children, the sacrifices, the literal children's sacrifices that they made to, to bring blessing. All these, all these understandings that the Canaanites had about how blessing was going to be achieved were wrong. And God wants his people to know, look, as you go into this land, I want you to understand this. The blessings that I've promised you through the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that I made to your forefather Abraham, these these blessings are not going to be achieved the way that others will tell you that they're going to be achieved. The the blessing of family and the blessing of, of peace and the blessing of security and the blessing of being in a relationship with me These are not going to be found in the way that the Canaanites tell you that they're going to be found. Don't share their values. Don't don't share their beliefs about how my blessing is achieved. My blessings are found in me. And specifically, you need to be hoping in this this coming one, the one who's going to deliver you from sin's curse, this this coming descendant, this, this coming king from the line of Judah. He's calling his people to trust and hope in him. How can you believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do? God says, believe in this this coming one. Place your faith and your confidence in him. You and I, as we live and exist in this world, encounter different beliefs about how blessing can be achieved, right? Right? There are different beliefs about how, how happiness is achieved. Different understandings of how happiness can be achieved as a single person. Different understandings about how happiness can be achieved in a marriage relationship. Different understandings about how happiness and God's blessing can be achieved in the workplace. As a student, as a friend. 
And what God wants us to understand is that, that all blessings are, are found in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is kind of the, a, a, an idea that I've been trying to, to think about this, this past week. I think that at the root of all sin, ultimately, and this isn't a novel idea with me, but I, I think ultimately the root of all sin comes from me not seeing or believing in the value of Jesus, right? Ultimately, whenever I sin, whenever I say, well, I'm going to do this when I'm supposed to do this, ultimately it comes from not believing in the value of Jesus in that situation, saying, I think, I think this is more valuable than him. I think significance as the world defines it is more valuable than Jesus, and so I'm going to do this in the workplace. Or I believe that, that, that physical satisfaction is more valuable than Jesus, and so I'm going to pursue this. Or I believe that that um, my right to vent my anger is of more importance than following Jesus Christ. Whatever sin it is, I believe ultimately comes down to not believing that Jesus is as valuable as he is, not believing that or seeing that. So the central idea I want us to, to wrestle with this morning as we look at this text is that we don't understand, when we sin, we don't understand that every blessing is found in the line of Judah in Jesus Christ. I don't want us to kind of talk through in the time we have left. I want to talk through about these these things we see about this this king, this king in whom all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are realized. I want us to see some things that we see about this this king, this this line of Judah, this this descendant of Judah that help us see his value rightly. Here's the first thing, number 1, verse 9, or verse um, verse 8. He's he's preeminent, right? He's preeminent. Look at what it says there in the text. It, it says, Judah, your, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, what does that remind you of? As I hear Jacob say this, it reminds me of the, the dreams that Joseph had. And remember what Jacob said whenever Joseph told his father Jacob about these dreams he was having where the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to him. His, his, his dad rebuked him, right? He said, that, that's not an appropriate thing for you to think. And yet, at the same time, the text tells us that he, he pondered it. He, he kept thinking about it. Here, I think we see the fruit of him pondering that, the, the fruit of him thinking about it. What's happened as he's thought about this and, and through God's divine insight here, he recognizes what we've been saying all along, that Joseph here is a picture of a, a future descendant, one who's going to be preeminent over his brothers and the other descendants in a, in a far more remarkable way. The brothers shall praise you, the sons shall bow down to you, and it's not only just preeminence over the brothers. It says your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Even his, his enemies he's preeminent over. And this, of course, is describing the Messiah. Even Jewish interpreters, as they looked at this throughout the centuries, would say this isn't, this isn't just a normal descendant here. This is talking about the Messiah. Jacob here sees Joseph as a picture of a future descendant of, of Judah, and he, he sees his preeminence, even if he doesn't fully understand it. Now, what happens? What happens whenever a person becomes preeminent? What's the inevitable result? Others must decrease, right? For one to be preeminent, he has to be preeminent over, or she has to be preeminent over others. 
For Jesus to be preeminent over all, others must decrease. Psalm 78 describes this. It describes God looking at the different tribes of Israel. He says he, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He, he didn't choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose the tribe of Judah. We see that the preeminence of Christ so clearly spelled out in Colossians 1. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He's he's preeminent over all things. And in him all things hold together. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the one that brought the universe into existence. He's the reason the universe exists. And he's the one that that keeps it together. He's kind of a big deal. He's a big deal in a way that that is beyond even understanding. His importance compared to everything else is infinite. He's before all things. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So so Christ is before all things in the universe. He's he's the head of the church. He's the head of everything. You think of what John the Baptist says whenever his disciples come to him and say, John, this this guy Jesus that that you mentioned and and talked about and proclaimed, other people are going after him. And then John says something that, that people in ministry, pastors, have a difficult time saying. People in the church have a difficult time saying. John the Baptist, as he hears about Jesus' ministry, says, look, you bore me witness. I said I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. He gives a picture of the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy of mine is now complete. And then he says these words. He says, he must, he must increase, but I must decrease. To have one person become preeminent over all, it means that all others must decrease. Our kids, uh, and some of your kids, kind of have a, a, a joke, kind of a tongue-in-cheek a, a tongue joke that, uh, that I hear them say in the halls and just kind of text messages and stuff. They, they use the phrase, uh, the phrase upper class and lower class kind of to, t- to tease each other. Oh, that's, I'm kind of upper class, just very, again, very tongue-in-cheek. They don't understand class system. There's... In Britain, they say there's now seven classes, seven social classes. They say in the United States, there's a, an upper class. Sociologist tells us there's an upper class. There's a middle class. And the middle class consists of a upper middle class, middle middle class, lower middle class. And then there's a working class. I don't know, but there are classes. There's social strata. And they say that, that each kind of class, each so there's this culture and there's there's different classes within a culture and and each class within a culture kind of values things differently so how you view education and how you view savings and how you view poverty and how you view wealth and social responsibility all those things are are 
our sociologists tell us, informed by our, our class and how we and our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents valued things. Here's the thing about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is a threat to every social class. Because whatever value system you've set up for yourself, Jesus is a challenge to it because says, he says, you know, he blows it all up. And he says, it's me. I'm the, I'm the central value. I'm, I'm the value above all other values. I'm, I'm the one to whom everyone should turn and worship and set their lives in order compared to me. As we think about the value of Jesus, he's, he's above all values. So we begin our, to think about our, our value system. We say, okay, here's the most important, here's the least important. All things center in Jesus. He's the reason for the universe's existence. He's the reason for the church's existence. He holds all things together. He's preeminent. The second thing is, he's mighty. He's mighty. Look at verse 9. Judah's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who, who dares rouse him. The imagery here is of this, this powerful beast. You want to compare someone in Scripture to something powerful, you, you compare them to a lion. Samson's enemies, the Philistines, as they're trying to figure out his riddle, they, they say to him, well, what's stronger than a lion? David, as he's trying to honor Saul and Jonathan after they die, he says they're, they're, they're strong as lions. A lion is a fearsome beast. A lion can, can take on a, an animal a thousand pounds. It, can, it could kill you and I with just a, a swat of its paws. It, it could break our neck just with one swat. It has amazing, you know, powerful jaws and, and claws. It's agile. It's fast. It could be on us. And we could be dead before we even realized what was happening. Which was why I was kind of surprised a few years ago when I went to South Africa when some friends there suggested, hey, would you like to go pet some lions? Uh, I thought the trip had been going well. I was surprised they wanted to, to take me to the lions. But they suggested that. And I found out it was, it was lion cubs. I said, oh, okay, lion cubs. Seems slightly more safe. We arrive there, and, and as, you, as you look at this, this place where they're keeping these lion cubs, I mean, it's just this huge, huge enclosure. And there's, there's I remember we were, we're going through the gate, and there's this sign, and it says, you know, warning. And then it shows a picture with severed fingers. And I'm thinking, really? Like, I, this does not seem like a good idea. So we, we go in there, and you, you hold these, these tiny little lion cubs, and you can you can sense the, the power, the strength that is going to be in these, these little beasts. And they look at you and you can tell them, they're, they're thinking, how could I kill you? Um, your cat does the same thing. But the, the lion's just, how could I kill you if I needed to? They're mighty, right? They're strong. God is, is mighty. The, the Messiah is, is mighty. There's, there's nothing that is beyond. He's mighty in a way we can't even comprehend. There's nothing that's, that's beyond his ability to do. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's conquered. All things are, are at his feet. There's, there's nothing that he can, there's anything that, that you need, any hurt that you have, God is aware of it and he has the ability to deal with it. A lot of us are kind of, you know, freaking, about, freaking out about the election. God's got it, you know. The Messiah is in charge. He's mighty. There's, there's no person in power that he couldn't just, just flick and dispose of. He's, 
He's mighty. There's no situation, no hurt in our life that he's not powerful over. And yet, at the same time, that's positively, negatively, he's also one to be feared, right? He's mighty in a fearful way as well. There's, you go back to verse 8, and and again, there's that idea of, of him his hand be on the neck of his enemies. You're going to go down in, to verse 11 and it talks about the, the blood of grapes. There's kind of a violent imagery there as well, perhaps. And, and the idea is that, that this one who's the Messiah, this, this coming king, he's, he's mighty and those of us who believe in him can take trust in his might. And yet there's also, I think in Scripture, this, this tension of he's also mighty in the sense that he's fearful. And, and these two things, trusting in his goodness, believing that he's good and that he's powerful and mighty for us, and at the same time recognizing that he's, he's mighty in a fearful way, I think that that tension helps us pursue holiness. I don't think many people do a better job capturing this, this imagery of his might as a lion. I don't think many people do it better than C.S. Lewis in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. In the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the beavers are talking with the children about Aslan, the lion, the king. And Susan says this as she's talking to the beaver. She says, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the third thing I want us to talk about. He's the king. He's king. He's mighty, and he's king. Verse 10. This is one of the most important verses, I think, in in Genesis to help us understand how God is going to deal with this curse. It says, The scepter shall not depart. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so what's happening here, there's, there's this prophecy, a, a prophecy of a coming king. He's there in the future. In fact, that phrase, it says, until tribute comes to him. Another way to translate it is that until he who comes to whom it belongs. In other words, the one who... Be- to whom the scepter belongs, comes. It's talking about this future king coming. I believe that's the right way to understand what's happening there. So there's this coming king from Judah. That's not all that remarkable, but the type of king he is is utterly remarkable. It says that he has an eternal throne and this extensive reign. All people are going to be obedient to him. Balaam prophesies about this in Numbers chapter 23 and 24, and we'll talk about that whenever we come to to Numbers prophesying this coming king. Deuteronomy 17 talks about this coming king. Psalm 60 talks about this this coming king from Judah. We see other passages in the Old Testament describing the the nature of this kingdom. It's it's an eternal king. Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. It lasts forever. It's an extensive kingdom. Psalm 2, 8. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 72, 8. He's going to have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Isaiah. Isaiah talks about how God in, verse, in chapter 11 will extend his hand 
to recover the remnant that remains from the people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, etc., from the, the coastlands, the seas. He's going to raise a, a signal for the nations. We see Daniel 7 kind of combining both ideas of his, the extensiveness of his reign and the, the eternality of his reign. It says, Daniel says in Daniel 7, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's Jesus. He's the eternal king. Revelations 5 talks about the extent of his kingdom. John sees the lamb, the lamb who's also the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and they worship him. They, they say, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. Let me, let me give one more Aslan quote. Because <laughs> I believe, again, Lewis just captures this so well. This is from the silver chair. And Aslan is, is talking to this, this young girl. Aslan the lion is talking to this young girl, and her name's Jill. And Jill asks Aslan the line, she says, will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I, if I come near? She's afraid of him. I make no promises, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she asks. Listen to what Aslan says. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, Kings and emperors, cities and realms. That's King Jesus. It's true. There's no kingdom that he doesn't swallow up. All kingdoms are are swallowed up by Jesus. And and here's, here's the thing to understand. If you set your heart and your hope in a kingdom, you need to understand that's a kingdom that's going to be swallowed up someday. If you say, I'm going to live and exist in this kingdom and, and base my values and base the things that I pursue and base my pursuit of blessing upon this kingdom and its values, you need to understand that's a temporary thing upon which you're placing your faith. It's not going to last forever. The clay tablets that were used of value in the 6th century Babylonian Empire no longer are used for transactions. It's hard to fit them in wallets, right? Or purses. If you're setting your hope in that, that, that kingdom no longer exists. If you're setting your hope on imaginary figures on a spreadsheet or on this, this digital thing in a bank potentially somewhere, you need to understand that may have value now. You may be able to exchange in commerce with it now, but it's not going to last into eternity. It's not the commodity of heaven. If whatever, whatever system you're basing your, your idea of blessing on right now you need to understand it's illusory. It's illusory. I don't know how to say that word. It's temporary and an illusion.
wherever you are right now, literally, in your seat, wherever you're standing, you need to understand that's, that's God's realm. It's his kingdom. He owns it. And the question to ask yourself is, is, is this realm that I'm standing in trying to cling to, calling to my own, is it, a, is it a kingdom that's about to be consumed? Or is, is it God's kingdom? Am I still trying to, to cling to my throne, or have I done the wise thing and abdicated, recognizing that it's, that it's God's anyway? The spot that I am, wherever I am in life, God has placed me there. And blessing is realized not by fighting his kingship, by, by trusting it. Last two things about Jesus I want us to think about from this passage very quickly. Number four, he's, he's wealthy. He's wealthy. The imagery here in verse 11 is one of lavish wealth and abundance. It says that this one binds his foal to the vine. In other words, he takes his, his donkey and instead of putting it in the, the, a place, you know, kind of tying it up somewhere, he takes it and he, and he just ties it to the choice vine, to this really nice vine. Yeah, the donkey's going to eat it. Who cares? I got plenty. You know. He's also lavish. Instead of washing his, his garments in in wa- washing water, he uses wine. He's that wealthy. You say, that doesn't seem like a great thing to wash your clothes in. It's imagery. It's poetry. How do you calculate wealth? I so said, well, it's your ability to, to, to procure resources. Wealth is, is your ability to, to, to accumulate things that you desire. And, and here, this one's wealth is, is beyond comprehension. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't have the ability to, to procure for you. Or he, there's nothing that he doesn't possess. There's nothing you need that he doesn't already possess. And he is a generous giver. If we don't have something, it's because we haven't asked or we don't need it. He's given us life, intelligence, the ability to, to think about him, to feel, to worship. He's given us salvation. He has all things that we need. And then finally, he's beautiful. Fifth thing here, he's, he's beautiful. Verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. There's, there's a beauty to him. Jacob and as Moses, as he writes it down, wants people to see that the beauty of this, this coming descendant of Judah, this, this king. The final chapter in Genesis 50, Jacob has died. They, they buried Jacob back in Canaan. Chapter 50, Joseph, the, the brothers are worried that he's going to take vengeance, but he speaks kindly to his brothers. He makes them promise to take his bones back to the land of Canaan. But here in 49, and in these verses, the hinge our understanding of what takes place in the future. It all hinges on this Messiah, this, this coming one, this descendant of, Jesus, of Judah, Jesus. The blessings are dependent upon the coming descendant. No coming descendant of Judah, no blessing. The blessings aren't found in Canaan. Here, here's what I want you and I to grasp. Our blessings are found in Jesus. And again, I'm, I'm convinced as we, as we struggle with sin, as we, as we struggle with our, our inability 
to live rightly before God, ultimately it comes down to this. Either we don't see the beauty of Jesus or we don't believe in it. We're not recognizing his matchless worth. Every blessing, every blessing we could hope to have, to achieve, every blessing in our marriage, every blessing in our relationships, every blessing in our work, every, every blessing in our relationships with one another, every, every, every blessing we can imagine is found in Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that to be true this morning. We ask your forgiveness for our foolishness and valuing anything above your son Jesus. I pray uh, for those this morning who uh, may be struggling just with various things. Maybe a person is, is struggling with, with the heartache of, of loss. And Father, we, we recognize that, that loss is, is not necessarily due to our, our sin, but we can sin in our response to it. And so I pray that whatever we lose, we would count as loss compared to your son Jesus. I, I pray for those who may be struggling with immorality this morning, that they would say, Jesus is, is more precious to me than, than physical pleasure. I pray for those of us who may be struggling with, with greed, that we'd say, Jesus is more value to me, valuable to me than, than any physical thing that I could possess. And, and we would display that through our generosity towards, towards the other members of the household of God and then, and then to others. And for those who are struggling in, in their singleness and just kind of thinking through some of the struggles maybe of, of, um, of dealing with relationships, I pray for them to see you as more beautiful and more valuable than whatever relationship they're trying to pursue or are sad about or struggling with, or for those who are in marriages where they're struggling, that they would see you as even more beautiful than their spouse. And whatever wrongs have been committed in that marriage relationship, they would count those as, as nothing compared to the forgiveness that they've received in your son Jesus. Father, wherever we are, struggling with, with pain in our past and, and just, just hurt and harm, whatever we are struggling with this morning, help us to see the great value the beauty of your son, Jesus, and to trust in him. We pray in his name. Amen.